Rethink Retail, the evolution of retail in today's connected world. Welcome to the Rethink Retail Show, your source for the most recent trends and innovations in commerce. Join host Julia Raymond, Global Director of Research at Valtech, a global digital agency focused on strategy and transformation in retail, as she explores the most recent trends and innovations in commerce. This episode of Rethink Retail, sponsored by Valtech, where experiences are engineered. Hi, today, welcome guest Steve Dennis. He's a strategic advisor, keynote speaker, and writer on retail innovation and the future of shopping. So naturally, he's also a Forbes retail contributor and recognized as a top five global retail influencer. Prior to founding his company, Sageberry Consulting, he was chief strategy officer for the Neiman Marcus Group. As a Harvard MBA grad with 30 plus years experience, he knows the ins and outs when it comes to catalyzing a brand journey from boring to remarkable. Steve, will you tell us more about yourself and what you're most passionate about in retail? Sure. Well, uh, first of all, thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, my, uh, I have been in retail a long time. I think um, perhaps what's most interesting or at least I find most useful is I've worked in a really wide variety of product categories other than grocery, really across just about every spectrum, home appliances, apparel, handbags, shoes, et cetera, you name it. I've worked across a really wide range of price points. I started my career at Sears and then my last corporate gig was with Neiman Marcus. So pretty big diversity in yeah. types of customers. And I've also managed to kind of bounce back and forth, uh, not, not really by design, but I've spent a good chunk of my career really on the more analytical staff side, really analyzing competition and customers and designing strategies. Uh, but I've also run businesses. I ran about a $600 million division at Sears and had a bunch of operating roles. So I sometimes refer to myself as both kind of an architect and builder. Uh, and I think that's been helpful in terms of um, particularly working with consulting clients because you know I, I understand that a lot of times consultants will come up with really elegant solutions that are very hard to actually implement. So I, I try to leverage that in my consulting as well as my writing and speaking. That makes a lot of sense. And that's a, that's a good interplay between the two. Um, as you put it, elegant solutions always aren't always easy to implement. So I definitely understand that, that perspective. And yeah. um, thanks for letting us know a bit more about your background, your work at Sears. Um, it sounds like you'd kind of run the gamut when it comes to retail. There was a recent, I think it was your keynote presentation that I was, I was browsing through and one thing you talked about is the struggling middle. Right. And as you put it, the middle's collapsing in regards to boring, traditional department stores. And this is really interesting because the middle's, you know, it's pretty large. So how can this sector overcome the hurdles that are leading to its decline and hurdles that you've mentioned started even before, you know, the big digital focus retailers like Amazon came into play? Sure. So, so usually, uh, I guess one of the things I've gotten a certain amount of notoriety on is my statement that physical retail isn't dead, boring retail is. Mm -hmm. and, and what I mean by that is, number one, the retail apocalypse narrative that's been so at play for a number of years really is, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a myth, but it's, it's very misleading because when you actually dive into where the stores are closing, where there are retail bankruptcies, where there are, you know, maybe not bankruptcies or massive store closings, but very anemic sales and profits. It's almost all concentrated in what I call 
the middle market. And by the middle market, I mean at one end of the spectrum, you have more value, convenience oriented retailers. At the other end of the spectrum, you have more premium or experiential sort of sort of retailers. And when you really look at it, like I say, this it's the middle retailers where the concentration of the problems are. And I think there are a few reasons for that. One is, you know, customers have so much access to information and choice and, and so forth that, you know, 10, 15 years ago, you used to be able to get away with being, you know, kind of mediocre because in many cases, the customer, depending upon where they lived, didn't necessarily have a lot of choices. Well, that, you know, whole structure has really, really gone away. And a lot of these retailers that were basically just kind of average are now in real, in real trouble. So, so the, the call to action really is for, you know, whether it's the department store sector, which is certainly where a lot of the troubles are, but, but there are plenty of other retailers that aren't department stores that have had the same problem. You, you really need to pick a lane. You, you need to either decide that you're going to move much more towards value and convenience and eliminating a lot of the friction in the buying process, or you need to move to try to find ways to be more remarkable through experiences or service or really honing in on, on particular customers. So, you know, it's easier said than done. I think one of the problems with department stores in particular is that strategically, they're just very poorly positioned. They have, the market's moved away from them. They're so tied up in real estate that in many cases is not, in the right malls or too big or needs massive reinvestment that they don't have, um, as well as in many cases they haven't executed very well. So unfortunately for a lot of the department stores, I'm not, I'm not sure there's a lot they can do to really be that much better. Yeah, and speaking specifically about department stores in the traditional sense, how would they decide whether to move more towards the value and convenience versus towards experience? Like do they have to choose which one to really hone in on? Well, that, yeah, they absolutely have to choose. I, I think in most cases, you know, it depends a little bit where they sit on the spectrum. If you're a little bit more premium oriented like Macy's, I think it's certainly going to make more sense to continue to push a little bit more upscale and more experiential. If you're more like a, a JCPenney or Kohl's, where you've got more overlap with, you know, some more tend to sell more commodity products, tend to be more price oriented, then you might need to, to push more to the value equation. The, the real problem is being stuck in the middle though, trying to be a little bit of everything to everybody. That, that's the real problem. You just, you just can't get away with it anymore. Um, though, you know, in the case of department stores, the decline in the department store sector has really been going on for an extended period of time. So this is not a new phenomenon. It's just really exacerbated by some of the shifts in customer behavior and technology and online shopping and so forth. That makes sense. And because coming back to the word boring, though, you know, the experience, I can understand how that would alleviate some of that, the traditional boring retail. But um, we're talking about adding value and convenience. Is that where just a good amount of digital comes into play to remove the idea of a boring retail store? Well, the reason I picked the term boring, which some people challenge, it's, you know, another way of saying it is, is perhaps mediocre. Um, but the reason I pick boring is I'm really trying to get more towards the emotional <laughs> response right. and how customers feel about the overall brand experience. So, you know, what, what brands really need to do is dissect the customer journey and understand where they have opportunities to remove 
friction or pain points or whatever you want to call them and where they have opportunities to really what I call amplify the wow, but really do something that's really, really memorable and, and impactful for the consumer. So that's going to vary based upon the retailer. Now, for sure, there are plenty of opportunities where digital technology can be helpful, whether that's taking friction out of the process, whether that's using AI to create a more personalized experience. I mean, there's a lot of different dimensions to that. The main thing, though, I argue, though, is it's really not about digital or physical. Those, those are really, they've, they've converged so much that that's really not the point. The point is really to think about the customer as the channel. And then if you understand the customer journey well, then you'll understand where digital is going to help you and where a more physical experience is, is going to help you. And again, that, that's going to vary by, I mean, it's a little hard to kind of provide a one-size-fits-all solution. It's really that customer journey mapping with that lens of, eliminating friction points and amplifying the wow that I think is most, most helpful. Right. And that, that totally makes sense. And it reminds me of the buzzword that we all love to hate nowadays, the fidgetal <laughs> that people are trying to start using for the blending. Well, I'm, I'm very happy and I'm not going to change now that I have never once uttered or <laughs> uttered that word. <laughs> it's possible that I wrote it in a, in a mocking, a mocking way. Yeah. Uh, I hate it almost as much as Omnichannel. <laughs> yeah, right. Moving on to this next question, because it kind of relates here. In another Forbes article, you had said that legacy brands are trying to innovate. They're often injecting well-intentioned experimental elements into their existing stores. You said serving mostly to call attention to what is broken to the rest of their business. And this is the part I really think is interesting. You said, or they create a store of the future pilot that often comes across like a greatest hits of other brands memorable moments. So what did you really mean by that? Because it's a really interesting take. Well, a couple things. And, and of course, you know, you have to start somewhere, but, you know, for, and I'll, I've written about this, so I'm not, I'm not uh, <laughs> saying something I haven't said before, but uh, for example, some of the things that Macy's is doing, particularly with the rollout of the story concept within a number of their stores, the story concept is interesting and it's very well executed from a visual standpoint. Um, whether it will work or not as a standalone idea, I'm not sure. But the stores that I've seen it in, it's so different than the rest of Macy's visual merchandising <laughs> that right. it really calls attention to the things that aren't so great at Macy's. And so, like I said, you have to start somewhere. That's not to say that it's a bad idea for for Macy's to do story and it remains to be seen whether it will work. But, you know, particularly when you're a multi-line department store or you're selling a lot of different kinds of products to a lot of different kinds of customers, you know, the whole store has to work. So, so I think injecting these sort of one-off ideas um, are nice, but, you know, it really just suggests that there's a lot more work to do for these stores to be truly remarkable. The flip side of that, which is a thing, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to have been involved with many of these store of the future sort of ideas. That phrase has been out there for quite a long time. I don't, I don't know where it originally started, but I, I certainly was familiar with it when I was working at Sears in the 90s. <laughs> and a lot of times what happens is the strategy teams or whoever comes up with this, consultants or what have you, go out and they look at all the kind of cool things that winning retailers are doing, and then they bring them back and they try to do a little bit of everything all at the same time. And that's what I mean by greatest hits. It's like, well, we'll take one from column A and one from column B and and hope that it all hangs together. And a lot of times it doesn't. And a lot of times, you know, you might be able to pull that off in 
in a couple of pilot stores, but if you've got a good chain or a big chain, um, you don't necessarily have the, the financial resources to, to roll it out. So, you know, you have to be careful that the things that you're doing are really truly memorable for the customer and, you know, they sort of hang together as part of the whole brand experience because eventually it's going to come across as disjointed and or it won't be scalable. That makes sense. So cohesion playing a big role in scalability. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, talking about just kind of the experience that customers have when they go into the stores like a Macy's that has the big story platform. I've seen a lot of different stats around this, but there was um, the one that said one in three consumers would walk away from a brand, even if they love it after a single bad experience. So how important are the frontline in the future store and how can retailers empower them in driving positive experiences? So I think, you know, the, the idea of the, the front line is, is getting redefined because, again, I think it's really this, this a bit of the, the collapse of the middle and this bifurcation phenomenon where when you're more on the value and convenience side, I wouldn't say store associates are unimportant, but they're becoming less important as technology comes into play. And as I forget who originally said it, I think maybe Mindy Grossman from HSM, but this idea that for many customers, a retailer is only as good as that customer's last great experience. In other words, you know, if they've seen a really great checkout or easy returns or whatever at another retailer, they, they sort of expect you to be able to do that as well. So it puts a lot of pressure, again, on this notion of being really remarkable. So I think when you're talking about more efficient buying sort of activity on the part of the customer, there's going to be more and more technology brought to bear, whether that's you know, self-service checkout or an Amazon Go sort of phenomenon or you know things you can do on your mobile phone and sales associates in that role or in that situation are a little bit more just to deal with issues you know that might come up or just to be sort of a friendly smiling face when you're more at the other end of the spectrum particularly for you know more high-end stores i think you know one of the main reasons that people go to physical stores is to be able to get help from a sales associate, you know, try things on, understand the quality, you know, maybe put an outfit together, or if they're say redoing their home, you know, be able to put a decorating solution together. So I think it's going to be even more important for that customer experience to pay off, and, and in many cases for sales associates to be a big part of that equation. I think the challenge is, um, you know, what I've seen a lot in my own personal experience, perhaps yours as well, is. So many customers come into a store now having done a lot of research and, you know, they're either ready to buy or they're very focused in their question. And it's often hard for sales associates to be able to be as knowledgeable about, you know, all the possible situations they might encounter, you know, with a given customer. So I think that really puts pressure on retailers to, you know, provide better training to sales associates, in many cases to provide technology that enables the, the sales associate to kind of meet the customer where they are, um, you know, which is quite a bit different than the way the whole sales associate um, customer interaction would, would be, say, you know, even seven or eight years ago. Yeah, and I, I really like your perception there, just kind of putting, if we were to put ourselves in the, the shoes of someone, you know, that's a Macy's employee or a Home Depot employee and someone comes in and asks about the specific thing they researched 
and they might not have that information <laughs> as readily available in their brain as the person who just looked it up. So that makes a lot of sense. And do you think just the burden is on retailers to provide better information to their employees that they can access more easily? Yeah, yeah I think so. I mean, and, and this is a bit, a little bit too black and white, but I think, you know, either you have to, you know, some of the traditional ways of serving customers are, are better probably blown up, you know, that, you know, if you can't be helpful to the customer on their journey, then you need to get out of the way and remove the friction point. And, you know, in some cases that may be self-service, you know, rather than trying to put a sales associate as kind of a barrier to sales. In other cases, I think it's, it's both more training, you know, in some cases that that will be technical knowledge. In other cases, it might be more of a consultative sale where the sales associates, you know, consumers left to their own devices in many cases can figure things out for themselves. In other cases, they may not, you know, fully appreciate the value of, of a more expensive product or a different product or whatever it might be. So in that case, you need a sales associate that's got that consultative sales orientation. So it's teaching them those skills or, you know, hiring for that in the first place. But I think a big piece of it, because so many customer journeys in physical stores are somehow or other digitally enabled, whether that means the customer did a lot of research online before they came into the store, or they're showing up with their mobile device and, you know, checking stuff out as they're in the store, you've really got to be able to provide the sales associate with some sort of technology, which is probably some sort of smart device to be able to kind of match up to the consumer in that moment and ideally provide some value added services that the consumer can't, you know, do for themselves. So an example of that would be the customer shopping for, let's say the shoes and the retailer doesn't have them in stock, then the sales associate should be able to instantly check availability online or in another store and be able to say to that customer, oh, you know, we don't have it here, but, you know, I can get it for you, deliver it to your home or office, you know, later today or tomorrow at no cost or, you know, that, that sort of thing, which is a behind the scenes thing that a retailer can do that keeps the customer from just walking out of the store and then going shopping somewhere else. Right. And it's, you said later today, which is, it's funny because just the shipping times and expectations yeah, right. are becoming so short. It's great for the consumer. It's creating some real economic issues for a lot of retailers because, you know, doing, it seems like those, the stakes keep being raised on delivery times and mostly that adds costs. And it's not clear for most retailers that that'll necessarily be paid for by, by more sales. It's becoming more of a of a, an expectation and uh, you know, it's the economics of that are really challenging, but we'll see. Yeah. And, and just the geography makes it a challenge in a lot of places, which, you know, sometimes consumers might not think about that immediately, but for retailers to offer the logistics to support the same shipping as Amazon or any of the other big competitors is definitely a big challenge. So moving on a little bit, I, and you don't have to call out any retailers if you if you want to stay away from that, but are there any that you think are worth mentioning on this podcast that are rising stars in customer experience that are like really successfully creating those remarkable experiences that you talk about and treating different customers differently? Sure. Well, I, I think a lot of the uh, the so-called digitally native vertical brands, you know, Warby Parker, Casper, Bonobos, um, you know, a lot of those brands have had a lot of success because number one, I think they have, well, they have a, a, several advantages, you know, cause they started online. They were really, really focused on 
what they needed to do to steal market share from traditional companies. So in many cases, that's been, you know, a really unique product and or a really good customer experience uh, and an unusually good value, those sorts of things. Now, as they've virtually all of them are moving really aggressively into opening their stores, I think what's really interesting is because they started online, they've already got kind of this orientation of leveraging customer data to better understand how to serve customers and, and personalize the experience. And they've also not gotten caught up in this kind of siloed mentality that a lot of physical or a lot of traditional retailers have of, you know, e-commerce is one channel and stores another channel. They really built their brand from the perspective that the customer is the channel and the customer is going to decide how they want to be served. And so that I think has created a much more remarkable experience, you know, kind of regardless of how the customer wants to shop. So I think most of those brands that are getting to a pretty good size and growing rapidly are, are great examples uh, in almost all cases. But there, you know, there's some traditional retailers or legacy retailers, whatever you want to call them, that are doing this as well. I think Sephora, you know, has been around for quite some time. They've really invested very heavily in better cross-channel integration and more personalized experience. Um, they've already got quite a lot of unique, unique products. So I, I definitely think there are, uh, to use the cliche, old dogs that can learn new tricks. <laughs> and then I guess a retailer that's sort of in between in terms of size, but growing rapidly. I, I often talk about Canada Goose, um, the luxury outerwear brand. Mm -hmm. uh, not only do they have, you know, really great product and really, um, you know, elaborate, beautiful stores, uh, but they're doing some cool things with their dressing rooms where it's basically a walk-in freezer where you get to experience the product in, you know, sort of real world conditions to understand the value of how well the product works. And to me, that's a great example. You know, when you talk about experiential retail, you know, what does that even mean anymore? I think all retail is experiential, but to me, the best experiences are the ones that are, you know, very customer relevant, authentic from the standpoint that they have a lot to do with what the product is about. It's not just like some gimmicky thing to try to get, you know, more likes on it or more posts on Instagram. Right. Um, and, you know, it really, helps the customer understand the value of buying from the brand. So, you know, so that's kind of a specific example for Canada Goose, but I think the best retailers are really, that's what they're doing pretty consistently. I like those examples and, and definitely agree. It does bring me to another point that's really related because you talked before about digital influence and how it varies widely by retail category. And obviously some of the brands we just mentioned, like the Warby Parkers or the aways of the world, um, you know, they, they started and were digital first. So how can that mindset be a trap? Because you mentioned that sometimes there's a risk there. Yeah, I mean, I used to talk about digital first as being one of the key things that brands should think about. And I, I really think I was uh, wrong about it, or at least over, I was overplaying that. I think the problem, a couple problems with thinking about being digital first is, and maybe I'm too much wrapped up in the semantics, but there are plenty of times where customer journeys aren't digital first. While you know, it tends to be that the majority of customer journeys that end up in a physical store start online, it's certainly not all of them. In fact, you know, one of the reasons why digitally native vertical brands are opening so many stores is that they're discovering that it's really a great way to acquire customers because there still are plenty of customers that that like going to a store, you know, particularly if it's a product that 
is a little bit more premium priced or is something that you need to try on or really see in person to be able to tell the quality and the fit and get advice and all that kind of stuff. So I think just digital first can be a trap because plenty of customer journeys start in a physical channel. Also, there's plenty of cases where a physical experience is, is much better than a digital experience. Now, if you're just trying, I, I sometimes make the distinction between buying versus shopping. Buying being something that's really more mission focused and about efficiency and shopping, which tends to be more higher price stuff, but not always, but shopping where you're really actually doing a discovery process and you want to learn about product and touch and feel it often. And stores are pretty good at that in most cases. And so if your orientation as a brand is, ah, we're going to try to be digital first, then I think in many cases, you're actually missing opportunities to be remarkable because the physical assets you have can actually be incredibly valuable, whether that's the sales associates or the, you know, the stuff that the experiences you're offering in the store or, or what have you. So they could be missing some pretty substantial opportunities for customer acquisition if they continue with a digital first mindset in a, in a lot of cases, it sounds like. Well, cu customer acquisition, but also customer delight. You know, I think the internet's obviously wonderful in many, in many cases and has radically changed how retail works but it, it's still better at efficiency rather than effectiveness. And, you know, it's, it's pretty ironic that these digitally native vertical brands, many of which said they would never open stores, are actually not only opening dozens, if not hundreds of stores, um, they're actually seeing most of their growth come from physical stores. So, you know, they started with a digital first mindset and there are aspects of starting with a digital first mindset, as I alluded to earlier, that are incredibly helpful and give them some real advantages over legacy retailers. But, you know, they're, I think that really hit the wall in many cases as to how far they can get with that, with that mindset. So, you know, the, the bottom line is, you know, humans are still pretty important in the equation. And, uh, you know, it's great what algorithms can do <laughs> and what robots <laughs> can potentially do, but um, it's, it's not the be all end all for sure. Yeah, I could see that. And do you think there's a psychology maybe a little bit behind, you know, like a Canada goose offering the freezers where you can test out the rugged jacket and see if it's going to be right for you and extreme weather that you'd be more likely just because you've been probably helped by a really expert personnel and, and that way you wouldn't go back home and, and look up the product and try to get something with similar specs. I think so. I mean, you know, my experience has been there are, and, and this, you know, really is one of the reasons why you have to really delve deep into customer segmentation and customer insight. You know, there are always going to be some customers who will, I guess it's not so popular anymore, but, you know, a few years ago, we used to talk about the showrooming phenomenon. You know, you go into the store and you take advantage of that retailer's investment in, in uh, displays and product and inventory and sales associates. And then you just go home and buy it at the cheapest price. So yeah, I mean, I think there, there's always that, that risk. I think the key, particularly for physical retail, but I would say it's largely the same for most of online is, you know, what are you doing that's truly memorable and irreplaceable? If all you're doing is selling average product and you've sort of defined your business as being all about price, or you know, maybe all about convenience at a decent price, then you're always gonna risk 
being essentially out Amazon by Amazon. I mean, that, you know, trying to, you know, this is why I say when you, when you pick a lane, most cases you're not going to pick the, the value oriented lane because so many retailers will find themselves going directly up against Amazon and Walmart, uh, maybe, a, you know, a few others that just have enormous scale and, you know, basically it becomes about price and you're engaged in a race to the bottom, which, you know, you're eventually going to lose. So I think, you know, the real key is to build on those memorable and remarkable aspects that is very difficult for another competitor to replace. So using the Canada Goose example, you know, first of all, there aren't a lot of places that you can buy Canada Goose. It's very limited distribution. And, you know, even though it's very expensive, they've built a lot of things around it around the product to convince people that it's worth it, which is, you know, what the best luxury brands do. And so it's not so easy for somebody else just to knock off. I mean, it's not hard to knock off the look of that brand and sell it for, you know, one fourth the price, but it's not Canada goose. It's a mm-hmm. knockoff of Canada goose. And, and that's where I think, you know, the best brands have really built sort of a, a moat or a fort around their brands by having a lot of pieces work together well. Right. Having, having a strong brand that offers quality and like you said, remarkable and memorable experiences that probably plays in a little bit to like the 80-20 rule too, just focusing on those customers that are loyal and dedicated to the brand because they know the quality. Sure. Yeah. And it's, you know, I think it is a challenge for some of these more unique brands, whether they're the, a luxury brand or, you know, Canada Goose or, or, you know, I think we'll see over time, even some of these these digitally native vertical brands that have got some good growth, you know, it'll be interesting to see how they scale that business because at a certain point to get to certain volume, you know, you often have to kind of dilute or the tendency is to try to water down or dilute what made you special in the first place. And then you risk alienating those customers that, that have loved you all these years and have been willing to pay a price if you take it to mainstream. So, I mean, it, it isn't easy to do. And a lot of brands certainly have stumbled trying to, trying to grow past beyond a certain point. Well, do you think we'll see more in terms of digital first brands opening their own stores or more acquisitions from, you know, the huge like Unilevers of the world? (laughs) Well, probably some of both. I mean, I think, you know, if you're a more traditional company and you're getting disrupted by some of these brands, then, you know, certainly you're going to take a look at uh, potentially acquiring them to, uh, you know, be able to control your destiny a little bit better, um, you know, as a little bit of a side point, which is probably a separate podcast, you know, <laughs> some of the valuations for these brands, you know, are very hard to justify. So, you know, so I think one of the barriers to some bigger companies acquiring some of these companies is they just can't get their heads around, you know, here's this brand that's worth, you know, a billion plus and looks like they're going to lose tens of millions of dollars for the foreseeable future. You know, it's right. often hard to get your head around that. But I absolutely think we'll see more of these these digitally native vertical brands continue to open stores because um, you know, there are a bunch of reasons. One is, depending upon the product, it's just a good way to acquire incremental customers. You know, trying to acquire customers online for most of them has become incredibly expensive. You see some really crazy customer acquisition costs in some of these companies that are starting to go public or are public, and. You know, that's, that's really just kind of fundamentally where, where the growth is going to be. Whether they can scale profitably, um, you know, there aren't still, at this point, you know, many examples of these brands that are nicely profitable at any real scale. So, 
you know, the jury is really still out. And I think it'll take, you know, probably another two or three years before we really have a good, good picture of which of these brands can actually sustain their growth. Yeah, that's a good point. I could see the trouble with the valuation there. So I really enjoyed your perspective on that. I really enjoyed your insights and and joining the podcast today, Steve, and I hope we'll keep in touch. Uh, Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Take care. You too. Bye. You've been listening to Rethink Retail. For all the latest news on commerce and trends, join the discussion, rethink.industries.com. 